from coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. You're listening, you're listening. You're listening. You're listening to Terra Informa. I'm Charlotte Thomason, and I'll be your host for a half-hour journey into our archives. Before we start our episode, we would like to acknowledge that we are situated on Treaty 6, the historic and present meeting place of the Cree, Blackfoot, Métis, Soto, the Nakota Sioux, and the Dene. Our recording studio in Amiskwichi is Papa's Chase Land. We are grateful to work live and study on this land, and as we educate and share on environmental issues and stories, we recognize that as settlers, we are not the ones to start this work, but rather need to work in solidarity as treaty people with the indigenous nations that have been protecting this land since time immemorial. We encourage you as we go through this episode and afterwards to do some research into the land you live on, educate yourself about decolonization, and learn about the ways you can uplift Indigenous peoples and work towards Indigenous sovereignty through solidarity. This week on Terra Informa, we're taking a journey into our archives to be reminded of the devastating impacts of resource extraction projects on Indigenous communities here in Alberta and around the world, and about the resistance to that colonial and unlawful extraction. First off, we're going to hear a 2012 piece by Terra Informer Annie Banks, speaking with Erin Consmo about the effects of pollution on the reproductive health of First Nations communities. I was fortunate enough to speak with Erin Consmo of the Native Youth Sexual Health Network, an organization by and for Indigenous youth that works within the full spectrum of sexual and reproductive health, rights, and justice across the United States and Canada. Oftentimes, pollution is thought of as impacting the land and the water, but what about the impacts that pollution, industry, contaminants, and environmental degradation have on nearby communities and individuals and their sexual and reproductive health? And why is it critical for environmentalists to learn more about this? What is environmental violence? And how are communities defining, responding to, and resisting it? Here's my interview with Erin. Well, my name is Erin Consmo, and I'm originally from central Alberta. My background is Métis Cree, um, and I'm, I'm currently a Native youth who is working for the Native Youth Sexual Health Network. You recently attended the Second International Indigenous Women's Symposium on Health, Life, and Our Future Generations. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? This, this gathering really was, um, or is, um, a chance for Indigenous women to get together and to specifically talk about how, um, how different, talk about the different ways in which the environment is, is impacting Indigenous women's reproductive health and their bodies. And so... The, the, out of the first gathering, there was a declaration that was created, um, and you can find that on the Native Youth Sexual Health website. And it really gives specific examples of the ways in which, you know, as, as Indigenous women, our bodies are targeted. 
um, around environmental toxins. So some of those really specific examples that we see a lot in Indigenous communities is how so how environmental toxins affect our breast milk, um, or how there's higher rates of silver births or miscarriages among Indigenous women. And Symposium also offers chance for us to, to get together and talk about the social ways in which the environment is impacting our communities. Uh, and so one distinct way that uh, I remember um, a woman talking about it at the symposium was, so she works around basket weaving, and that's a traditional craft in her community. And as they're working with the reeds that they use for weaving the baskets, they, they split the, the reeds with their teeth and with their tongues, and so they work with the reeds a lot in their mouth. And what they're starting to see is um, that people are starting to get cancers in their mouth. And so the, the symposium is also really focused on the ways in which we're not able to participate in our own culture, our own cultural activities, because of the ways that environmental pollution is impacting, like, say, our traditional materials that we use for crafting. And so out of both of these gatherings, we, we created um, with, you know, hundreds of women uh, this, this declaration to say, you know, these are the specific impacts on Indigenous women, their health. Um, this is what we urge, you know, United Nations bodies to do, our state governments to do, to take action, and really expanded the, the conversations and dialogue around how Indigenous women are seeing it impact uh, themselves as well as um, our young ones or our children and our future generations. Um, and I think that some of the other things that, that came out were really focused, you know, in some of the work that we also do and see in at the Native Youth Sexual Health Network. So one of those examples, of course, related to this project is higher rates of HIV in, in areas that um, are impacted by industry, but also higher rates of sexual violence, higher rates of um, child welfare. So we see a lot of our children being removed from our communities, um, which is a specific, it's specifically related to environmental justice. If we don't have our children in our own territories, in our own communities, then that is a specific um, envi environmental attack. And so we really started to talk more broadly about all of those themes that we're seeing, not only in Canada or the United States, but internationally and globally. And that also um, is important for us to have those conversations about what we're seeing so that we can start um, creating new programs and solutions and advocacy campaigns around how to, how to fight some of the ways that the, these attacks on our environment are also attacking in, Indigenous women. One of the key things that was talked about was environmental violence. Uh, what is environmental violence? Environmental violence is uh, a terminology that was developed to basically speak to the way that um, environmental contaminants or industry or military processes has specific effects and attacks or violence on Indigenous women and children. And so it's a term that basically encapsulates all of these dynamics that we're seeing. Recently, there was an event, the Environmental Land Justice for Métis Women and Youth HIV Prevention Project in Buffalo Lake. Could you tell us a little bit about that recent event? Yeah, sure. So um, this is one of the newer projects that we have with the Native Youth Sexual Health Network. This project is specifically for Métis women and youth. Um, and looks at pre preventing HIV among our communities and, say, non-Aboriginal women and youth. And so this project really arose out of um, a need to start identifying um, some new prevention and education programs for specifically Métis women and youth. And 
another piece that we also see in the HIV prevention movement is that among Aboriginal HIV prevention education and support programs, they're, they're pan-Aboriginal, so they're not specific to nations. So this is a really important program for um, and step for us to be making some more Métis-specific tools and having some Métis understandings of, say, healthy sexuality, of harm reduction, and how we talk about things like sex. And so um, this project really arose out of that need. And, and also uh, another important component to it is this idea around environmental and land justice. So this project um, is really a response to the ways that industry and um, so oil and gas, uh, mining, um, coal, coal mining, things like that, um, but a high rates of industry that are affecting uh, Aboriginal communities, so whether that's Métis, First Nations, or Inuit. And we often talk about the ways that industry affects the land, so how it's affecting the land in terms of pollution, our lakes, our waters, our air, um, the food that we eat. But some of the, the things that we sometimes don't talk about enough are the ways that industry or environmental pollution or the stressors that come from industry being in our communities also affects um, our family systems, our family units, the way that we interact with each other uh, when there's large amounts of people that come into our communities that aren't normally there. And so this project's really looking at the links between those, those other ways that the industry or changes in our environment are affecting um, our sexual and re reproductive health and more specifically HIV. So uh, the first community that um, we were working in was Buffalo Lake uh, Métis Settlement. And so we have two communities that we're working with, one in Alberta and one in Ontario. And uh, the one of the other unique pieces to this project is that it's community-based and it's also, we also use arts-based methodologies or arts-based approaches to make these links between how the environment is affecting our bodies and uh, also affecting rates of HIV in our communities. So we really started off with some basic conversations about what's happening in Buffalo Lake Métis Settlement in terms of um, land rights, in terms of hunting and trapping, in terms of um, you know identifying with the area around, around them in terms of history. So this project um, happened over three days, and we did things like belly casting, community mapping, and creating images and conversations around how the land, our health, and our bodies are connected, um, while focusing on strengths about uh, community knowledge that already exists to combat things like environmental pollution and um, the effects of industry. And um, it was really participatory and focused on, on building that, that community knowledge and strength of the land around people. So... Uh, we're really excited about this project, but, um, you know, we, we have the chance to have some more of these conversations in a really specific way, and um, I think that art art is really a, a really powerful way for us to, to, to incorporate cultural knowledge and to have some more of these in-depth conversations. Why do you feel it's important for environmentalists to learn about how environmental pollution affects sexual and reproductive health? So, like I said... Environment, the, the environmental movement often often looks at some of the more distinct ways that pollution or industry is affecting our natural environment. So, you know, whether that's our waters, our air, our land, um, the food that we eat, the animals in that environment. But it's also important for us to really look at how 
these industries and these environmental impacts are also impacting, um, you know, our bodies, the way that um, we're able to, able to or not able to bear children, bear healthy children, be able to breastfeed our children. Um, some of those really, really basic, uh, basic human rights around our bodies. And so if, if we're not looking at those, um, if we're not looking at the way that the environment is really impacting our bodies um, in specific social ways, then I think that we're really going to miss um, some important pieces to fighting back to and also proving the ways that industry is impacting um, our communities as a whole. So uh, it's really important, I think, to start expanding the discussion and conversations around why, why, why Aboriginal communities are fighting for environmental justice so much. Listening to Terra Informa. That was Annie Banks interviewing Aaron Consmo from 2012. Next up, we travel to 2013 to hear a piece by Terra alum and the current CJSR podcast coordinator, Chris Chengyan Phillips, interviewing Sierra Jamerson on her family's role in the Taltan Nation's protection of the sacred headwaters in BC. You might have heard of the sacred headwaters in Taltan territory. It's the origin point for three powerful rivers that run through British Columbia, the Stidkine, the Skeena, and the Nass. When the oil and gas industry tried to start mining in the area, Sierra's family was at the forefront of the Taltan resistance. Sierra opens the piece with a song recorded live at the St. John's Institute in Amiskwichi. So first off, we're going to set the mood with a piece from Edmonton-based singer-songwriter Sierra Jamerson. She wrote this one just for the show, so everyone put your hands together for Sierra. Thank you so much. Um, I'm really honored to be here, and I'm really excited. So this first one that we're going to do for you, I, I, like, I wrote it about two weeks ago, so it doesn't have a title yet. It's, um, it's, it's still in the process. Right now, I'm calling it Earth Song, because it's about the Earth. Um, I was doing some research. Uh, before I wrote this, and um, I, I found a list of different species of animals that are endangered in Alberta. So um, a few of those animals pop up in the song here, and I hope you guys enjoy. Never die 
And I can't imagine life without a grizzly bear A swift fox or a woodland caribou If your grandchild lived beside toxic waters Tell me what exactly would you do? What about the air that we breathe? What about the forests and the lands? Rivers running dry to fill their greed. Will you make the choice to take a stand? Hey, a northern woodland in the winter. countless creatures you and I must give them room to grow so for rivers run down from the mountains fish lay their eggs and bravely swim upstream the people live with them in balance I must keep those rivers clean And I can't imagine life without a grizzly bear A swift fox or a woodland caribou hmm. If your grandchild lived beside toxic waters Tell me what exactly would you do What about the air that we breathe? What about the forests and the lands? Rivers running dry to fill their greed. Will you make the choice to take a stand? Oh, what about the air that we breathe? What about the forests and the lands? Rivers running dry to fill their greed. Will you make the choice to take a stand? To take? Will you make the choice to take a stand? Will you make the choice to take? Will you make the choice to take a stand? Oh, will you make the choice to take a stand? Thank you. Hi, Sierra. It's good to see you again. Yeah, you as well. <laughs> I heard you have a very hard fought for uh, story about what the sacred headwaters means for the Taltan people. Yeah, I, I do. I guess you probably want me to tell you the story. Okay, um, so, I mean, I grew up in Edmonton, um, and 
every summer when I was younger, we would go up to Dease Lake uh, and visit my grandmother. Uh, this is my paternal grandmother, my father's people. They're, they're from up there. Um, and we'd spend so much time with my aunties and my uncles and my cousins there. And so while I never lived there, I, it's, it's a place that is important to me. Um, when I was much younger, uh, in about 2004, um, uh, the BC government okayed um, exploration up north to, to pursue development. Um, tall time people were non-treaty, but um, yeah, I mean, the sovereignty issue, right? Um, being not consulted, right? Um, when people are going to come and basically tear up your basement, that's, that's, a, that's a huge problem, and it's something that happens on reserves nationwide, right? Um, and so in this instance, um, my grandmother, her name is Lillian, but we call her Tiger Lil, because she's that tough. <laughs> um, she and a few other elders got together, and they uh, created an organization uh, called Threat, and that's the Taltan Heritage Resources Environmental Assessment Team. And um, they basically, they were not interested in bargaining. They were not interested in compromise. The sacred headwaters are the place where the people who still live on reserve get their food. That's the water they drink. That's the salmon they eat. Those are the deerskins that they make their, their garments for ceremonies for. That's where their houses are. That's the air that they breathe. And they were not interested in drinking water coming from a coal mine or having to fly in food because it's so far north and pay thousands of dollars when, you know, the creator has given them everything that they need right there. And so they began to fight. And more than just these material things that people were fighting for, it's, it, it's considered the Taltan homeland. Um, it is. So uh, I, I heard that you, you grabbed your granny on the phone, um, rested her <laughs> away uh, yeah. from uh, some, some busy work that she was doing. Um, so what was the story that she told you about that uh, connection that Taltan people have to the land as, as a homeland? Well, what I understand is, I guess it's... There's a few ways. It's important not only because there are s stories, you know, folklore talking about like different leaves that grow there that you can use for medicine, like caribou leaves. Um, there's like a fable where a man like got mauled by a grizzly bear and they created a plaster with caribou leaves and pitch and like sewed up his wounds with a woman's hair and then he was healed. So, I mean, I don't know if he was actually healed, but um, they actually, they sent in some caribou leaves for study um, inland in Vancouver, and they're like 83% penicillin. So, you know, maybe that had something to do with it. Or it's identity, knowing like which, which mountains to hunt in. It's um, having a sense of belonging. You know, this is where your people are. Um, when you take the land and the belonging, the home from a people, their culture goes away. When their culture goes away, their identity and their language goes away. There are maybe like 35 to 50 people who still speak Taltan in the world. Wow. And I mean, there are linguists in UBC trying to revive the language. I know my Auntie Frida, she's trying to learn Taltan <laughs> right now. Um, I would. I probably should. Uh, <laughs> I can't speak it at all. Um, and yeah, just losing where you are, where you're from, that 
that decimates a people. And I think we've seen that in Alberta and on the prairies and out east um, with other First Nations very clearly. So tell me what your grandmother um, has been able to do and, and how far she's been willing to go. Okay, man... I just, I have so much respect for her. I, I look up to her so much because she's, she's so strong. Um, she actually was arrested with other elders, I think, mid to late 2000s. I can't remember exactly when. It might have been 2005. Uh, I just remember <laughs> my dad coming home with a newspaper and being like, hey, grandma got arrested, eh? <laughs> and we were, I mean... You would normally never be happy if your grandmother went to jail, but we were we 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 celebrated because that was how how far she was willing to go. Um, she's been in international news magazines. Um, I think she chained herself to a tree. She stood in front of like these bobcats and machines from like Royal Dutch Shell is trying to explore here. That's like the second largest corporation in the world against. 10 grandmas like come on (laughs) you know but they've been able to successfully have a temporary moratorium on any like exploration for development it's david and goliath right and and now uh the bc government has has extended that moratorium to all natural gas and um oil development in the area yeah Yeah, which is um yeah it's a it's a big movement right on (laughs) (laughs) um what do you think you've learned from your aunties, from your grandma? Well, I mean, strength, courage, and wisdom. You know, uh, she believes in what she believes in, and I, you can, you, I think you can even read it online. You know, hearing her say, "Like I'm doing this for our grandchildren." You know, like she's doing that for me. So I, I know where I come from. You know, so my sisters and my brothers know that. So my cousins can. You know, it's. Even if they took away the things that they have to survive, it's it's for the future because it's so hard to preserve a traditional way of life and a culture and pass that on to your children in this day and age, especially for First Nations people. You know, there are so many systems in place that make that so difficult, and that's that's how we will have longevity. That's how we will maintain if we if we support the future and you know, the future is me. So I feel incredibly blessed to have a grandmother who's willing to go to jail so I can come back to the place where I'm from. Do you think having that sense of like meaningful history and spiritual connection to a place helps people feel more empowered to fight for it? Because there are people who will chain themselves to a tree and um, put themselves in front of a bulldozer without necessarily having um, that spiritual meaning to it. I mean, I, I can see how that would hurt. Definitely, that would, that would definitely be a part of what could compel someone. Um, maybe even deepen your, your purpose or your cause because you feel like you are doing this for something that is greater than you that will always remain. Thanks, Sierra. That was Chris Changin Phillips interviewing Sierra Jamerson in 2013. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. 
I've been your host, Charlotte Thomason. Thanks for listening. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM. And all of our content is created by a team of wonderful volunteers. If you've liked what you heard, check out our website, terrainforma.ca, for more episodes. And if you have any questions or comments or want to be kept up to date, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Terra Informa. And we'll catch you next week, right here on Terra Informa.